The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. All right, I'd like you to open your Bibles this morning, if you would, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 19. My subject again today is the permanency of marriage, and this is a continuation of the study that we began last week. Many will argue that the Bible is an antiquated book, that it's just too old. There's really nothing in it for us today, and we don't really need to pay very much attention to it. But as we see from reading this particular passage of Scripture, that the Bible is fresh, it talks on subjects that we talk about today. I mean, who doesn't know that almost every single day in your newspaper, especially for these past few weeks, there has been something about marriage. Uh, It's a very important topic to us, and uh, although I won't get into all the things that have gone on, uh, we do need to know what the Bible has to say about marriage, and particularly particularly today we're dealing with the marriage, uh, the uh, rather the uh, subject of marriage and divorce. Now, if you'll look in Matthew chapter 19, and I'll ask you to stand one more time as we read God's Word. Matthew 19, and beginning in verse number 3, the Scripture says, The Pharisees also came unto him, that is, of course, unto Jesus. They came to him, tempting him, and saying unto him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? And he answered and said unto them, Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. Wherefore, they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. They say unto him, Why did Moses then command to give a writing a divorcement, and to put her away? He saith unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, suffered you to put away your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say unto you, Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her, which is put away, doth commit adultery." His disciples say unto him, If the case of the man be so with his wife, it is not good to marry. But he said unto them, All men cannot receive this saying, save they to whom it is given. For there are some eunuchs which were so born from their mother's womb, and there are some eunuchs which were made eunuchs of men, and there be eunuchs which have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He that is able to receive it, let him receive it. Father, we thank you. Again, for the time we've gathered together today, we pray that you'd open our hearts to your word and may we receive your truth gladly. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. In our last message, we marked that this particular scripture shows a very definite change in the ministry of Jesus. For the previous year, Jesus had been teaching in Galilee, and there he'd brought the gospel, the great light of the gospel, to his own people. And there were also times when he spoke to the Gentiles, but for the most part, he was speaking to the Jewish people, and they had rejected him as their king. Now, he had given much proof that he was the Messiah. All of his miracles showed that he was. 
But for the most part, Jesus suffered rejection. He had healed thousands of people. He had fed thousands of people. And most of the people gladly received the healing. And, of course, they welcomed the food. But they did not receive him as their king. Now, at the feeding of the 5,000, there was a movement to make Jesus the king then. But the motivation for it was wrong. And so Jesus very quickly had to quell that. He had to stop that. And the people would have made him king for all of the wrong reasons. Well, those times are past, and now Jesus had to leave Galilee, and he was ready for the final stages of his ministry, and these would take place in Judea and in the city of Jerusalem, and Jesus went there that he would die on the cross. Now, in chapter 18, Jesus had finished one of his most important discussions, and there are two or three major discourses that are given in the book of Matthew, and chapter 18 is one of those. And there Jesus talked about the kingdom of God and how there must be a real attitude of humility for God's people that must be present in the heart of God's people. He taught us to love each other. He taught how God loves his people. And he set his disciples up for a ministry in which after he left, they would be the ones that would be the ones who would care for his flock. Now, one of the most important teachings that came out of chapter 18 was the discussion about discipline. And Jesus introduced a method of church discipline, and he showed us that we are to have enough care and concern for our brothers and sisters in Christ, that we would be willing to do everything that's necessary to bring them back when they have gone off into sin. We must love our neighbors as ourselves, and as the Word of God teaches, we must be willing to bear one another's burdens. And so when a person sins against us, when another person in the church has hurt us, we are to accept them back into our fellowship and forgive them when they repent of their sin. And in the end of the chapter, Jesus gave a parable about forgiveness, that God has forgiven us of an infinite debt, and since he has forgiven us so much, then we ought to be willing to forgive those who have done far less against us. And the Bible teaches that God forgives the repentant sinner all of the time. And likewise, as God's people, we are to forgive one another all of the time. Well, entering into the 19th chapter, there there couldn't have been a better time for Jesus to address the subject of marriage and divorce. And the church is modeled upon marriage. And as the church often needs forgiveness... You and I know, those of us that are married, we know that our marriages often need forgiveness. So we have a question then about marriage that's brought up in the scripture, and specifically, uh, it's a question about divorce. But Jesus sought to redirect the question and to frame it in the context of what God intended for marriage from the beginning. And he tells us that God intended that marriages should be permanent, that they are to last until, as our marriage vow says till death do us part. Now, we notice in verse number three, the usual suspects that come and they ask questions that are intended to embarrass Jesus. I mean, the Pharisees were always on a campaign to discredit him. And so they came and they asked, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? Or we might better ask that question, is it lawful for you divorce for any reason? And the Pharisees weren't really interested in the answer that he would give. It least not for edifying instruction that they would follow. But the scripture says they came tempting him. And they were trying to get a response from him that would be unpopular with the people. 
And they knew that he would give a conservative answer to this because he'd already taken up this subject in the fifth chapter of Matthew during the Sermon on the Mount. But this was a divorce-filled society and an answer that would indict multiple divorce offenders would be the same type of answer that John the Baptist gave when he condemned Herod for his sin of divorcing his wife, taking his brother Philip's wife and entering into an incestuous relationship with her and living in adultery. And John renounced that in the strongest of terms, and that caused him to be put into prison, and Herod had him beheaded. So the Pharisees hoped for a similar outcome with Jesus, or at least that the people would be so upset with his answer that they would be able to discredit him as a prophet. But we know that Jesus is always come to come, going to come down on the side of the truth. It doesn't matter how unpopular the truth is, Jesus will always tell the truth and will always stick with the Word of God. Now, he wasn't like modern preachers because modern preachers rarely solve modern problems. And this problem will not be solved unless God's people go back to the Word of God and learn it and teach it just as it's given in Scripture. Well, Jesus didn't answer the question at first, but instead he took them to Genesis and he wanted to talk about, and this is what we discussed last week, he wanted to speak about the institution of marriage. Before he could get to the permission of divorce, he needed to talk about the institution of marriage and let them know what God intended. Now, we looked at it last week, and so we don't have time to go into it extensively again, but the summary of the Genesis passages that Jesus went to, Genesis 1:27 and chapter 2, verses 23 and 24, the summary of those scriptures is that God created one woman for one man for all time. Marriage is an institution that was begun by God. It was God that put the man and the woman together. He joined them together, and he made a new union in which Scripture says they become one flesh, they are a new creation, and they're never to be torn apart. God put it together, and what God joins together, man does not have the right to tear apart. Now, what Jesus did was to quote Scripture, and if you want the definitive answer on right or wrong, that's where you go. You go to the Scriptures as Jesus said in John 10:35, he said the scriptures cannot be broken. And here in this passage, he affirmed that what Moses wrote was the inspired word of God. But there seems to be a con- contradiction here because the Pharisees appealed to Moses in another place, not going to Genesis, but they appealed to Moses in another place where it seems that we find validity for divorce. And so after Jesus quoted Genesis, they thought that they had an ace up their sleeve and that Jesus would end up in conflict with himself because they thought that they had proof that Moses had given permission for divorce. Only they didn't state it as permission, but they stated it as a command. Verse number 7, they say unto him, Why did Moses command to give a writing of divorcement and to put her away? Now there is our doctrinal dilemma. We have the institution of marriage in verses 4 through 6. And now in verse number 7, there comes the intrusion of divorce. Now, these self-righteous Pharisees always thought that they were in compliance with the law. And although they claimed to be great upholders of the Mosaic law, what they usually did was to look for loopholes in the law where they might 
inadvertently um, violate the spirit of the law, but yet at the same time they could say they kept the letter of the law. So they looked for ways that they could do what they wanted to do and still be able to say that they were in compliance. And all the efforts that they had to get around God's law had led them into many different perversions so that they could sin without calling it sin. So the question is, did Moses actually create a loophole in the law that allows a way around a permanent marriage? Is there a command for a writing of divorcement? Well, let's look at, first of all, at this, at the distortion of the Pharisees. Now, I want you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 24. Uh, This is a scripture that we looked at very briefly last week, and today we're going to take a little bit of time with it to see what Moses had to say. Deuteronomy chapter 24, if you turn there, and we'll look at verse number 1. Deuteronomy 24, verse number 1. This is what Moses said. When a man hath taken a wife and married her, and it come to pass that she find no favor in his eyes because he hath found some uncleanness in her, then let him write her a bill of divorcement and give it in her hand and send her out of his house. And when she has departed out of his house, she may go and be another man's wife. And if the latter husband hate her and write her a bill of divorcement and giveth it in her hand and sendeth her out of his house, or if the latter husband die, which took her to be his wife, her former husband, which sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after that she is defiled. For that is abomination before the Lord. And thou shalt not cause the land to sin, which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance. Now, first we would see in this passage, we'll notice there's actually no command for divorce. Now, the King James Version leaves it a little bit vague for us because the word let, in verse number one, let him give her a bill of divorcement, that sort of has a ring of command to it. But they should have known, and we should also understand, that the scriptures are actually to be interpreted in this way, if he has found some uncleanness in her and he write her a bill of divorcement. So it's not a command, it's a statement of fact, and there's nothing said here about whether the practice is right or wrong. So we don't find an excuse for divorce, but rather this particular scripture gives us a regulation for remarriage. Or at least in the time of Moses, it was a regulation about remarriage. Now this text says that when a man divorces his wife and she marries another man, and then that man also divorces her, then she can't return to the first man, to that first husband, and remarry him. And even if the second husband should die, she cannot marry that same man again. Now, I'll tell you what that's all about in just a few minutes, but there's a reason why that Moses said that they couldn't marry. But just note this for now, that this is a, about a command for remarriage and not one for divorce. So that's the first distortion of the Pharisees. They took it out of the context and they made it about divorce more than it was about marriage and a regulation about marriage. Now, going back to the text, we find another distortion that has to do with the cause for divorce, and it relates to the word uncleanness in verse number 3. When a man hath taken a wife and married her, and it come to pass that she find no favor in his eyes because he hath found some uncleanness in her, then let him write her a bill of divorcement and give it in her hand and send her out of his house." Now, what the Pharisees did was they took the word uncleanness and they just went to town on that word. 
They blew it up into anything that a husband might not like about his wife. If she burned his toast for breakfast, if there was a hair out of place, or even if she didn't put her makeup on right. I mean, you pick out any reason that you want, and they said that it was okay. And they made divorce right, even though that God said, that the God of this universe who never changes said that this is very much wrong. So what, is the, what does the Bible mean in this passage when it speaks about uncleanness? And that's an important word for us here because all of it hinges on this word uncleanness. Now, let me ask you again, as I have for a thousandth time, what is the most important principle about Bible interpretation? Context. I'm glad you said that. Context. You have to look at the context of what's written, and that's what we want to do. What about the context? Now, remember that uh, Deuteronomy means second law. I brought that up last week. It's a book of laws. Sometimes it is a uh, restatement of laws that are given in Exodus and Leviticus. Sometimes it's a clarification of those laws. Now, we want to back up into chapter 23 and see if we can find a context for uncleanness. Now, I want you to notice something beginning in verse number 12 that you might have wondered about. And this is probably not a question that you would come to our Sunday morning forum class and ask in the public assembly. You might not ask this question. But let me tell you a little bit about what we're going to read here. You may have wondered about this. What did all of these people do? All of these people that followed Moses out in the wilderness, what did they do when they had to go to the bathroom? And that's a good question, isn't it? What did they do? Well, the Bible talks about everything. These are common problems that have to be dealt with, and this scripture says what they are to do. Deuteronomy 23, verse number 12. Thou shalt have a place also without the camp, whither thou shalt go forth abroad, and thou shalt have a paddle upon thy weapon, and it shall be when thou wilt ease thyself abroad, thou shalt dig therewith, and thou shalt turn back and cover that which cometh from thee. For the Lord thy God walketh in the midst of thy camp to deliver thee and to give up thine enemies before thee. Therefore shall thy camp be holy that he see, look, no unclean thing in thee and turn away from thee. Now there you have instructions about going to the bathroom. So if you had to relieve yourself, you went outside the camp and you carried a shovel with you. And you took that shovel and you buried... When you were finished, you buried that and you covered it up. Now, I know that's not pleasant for us to talk about this morning, but why would you do that? Well, it's a very simple reason. You don't want to step on it in it and carry it into the camp. You don't want it on your shoes and carry it into the camp. And the Word of God says why? Because your camp is a holy place and the Lord your God walks in the midst of the camp. Now, that's kind of disgusting, but that's a common problem that had to be dealt with. And it gives you some context for how filthy the uncleanness must be. So this has to be something that's really filthy and disgusting and vile. So the wife of the man has done something utterly disgusting, some filthy, vile thing, and he can't stand that, and so he gets rid of the wife. Now, it doesn't say that he should do it. It doesn't say that he can do it. It just says that he did it. And whatever it was, we do know this for sure, it can't be because she burned his toast. And it can't be because she cut her toenails crooked and she didn't go to Nails by Brett to have them fixed. It's not for anything like that. 
I mean, it's not anything goes like the Pharisees were teaching at the time of Jesus. That's not the intent of what God's law allowed. Well, what else do we know that it can't mean? Well, we know that it can't mean adultery. The law said that a woman who was guilty of adultery was to be stoned. She was to be killed. You didn't need a divorce in the case of adultery. You, you people were stoned for that. Now, remember in John chapter 8 when uh, all that woman that was caught in adultery and all the people were standing around her and they were ready to stone her? Well, they weren't trying to get a divorce out of this. They were trying to stone her because she was guilty of adultery. But the Pharisees had distorted all of this. There is no command to divorce. In fact, you can search the scriptures from one end to the other and you'll not find a command for divorce. And they also distorted what Moses actually did. He gave a regulation for remarriage in the case of what Israel was already doing. They weren't throwing people out for just any reason. I mean, this had to be something, as I said, that was very disgusting. There was vileness going on. Something that was so bad that it brought you right up almost to the point of adultery. Not adultery, but to that point. It's a serious thing. It's disgusting like adultery. And for that, Moses gave a law of remarriage. And so you can be sure that Moses did not permit uh, a divorce for anything less. Now, let's go a little bit further. Because it is clear that there was divorce in the time of Moses, and the law never gave a command for it. So why do we have a notation about divorce in Deuteronomy 24? Well, secondly, we see that there is a departure from the design. One thing that we know for sure, what they did is not what God intended. They departed from the original design for marriage, that God put one man with one woman for all time, and that doesn't change. All the way from Genesis to Malachi, it doesn't change. Marriage started in Genesis chapter 1, and you can go all the way through the Old Testament to the book of Malachi, and you can find that God still says that people should stay together. Now, I'd like you to turn to Malachi chapter 2, if you would, and we can see it there. Uh, divorce was still a problem in the time of Malachi, and so God gave a command about it. And do you think that what God said, well, it's okay now. I mean, things have changed. It's okay. So let me give you a hundred reasons for getting a divorce. Now, let's read what God says. Now, verse number 14 in Malachi 2 starts out with a question. And what's asked here is, why, God, do you refuse our sacrifices? Now, there was a lot of sin, and the worst of those sins was divorce. Malachi 2, verse 14, yet ye say, wherefore? Or in other words, why, God, will you not accept our sacrifices? Here's the reason. Because the Lord hath been witness between thee and the wife of thy youth, against whom thou hast dealt treacherously. Yet is she thy companion and the wife of thy covenant. In other words, there is a marriage vow between you. You've made a promise to her. There's a promise with each of you. There's a covenant that's been made between you. Verse 15, and did not he make one, or did he not make you one person? Yet had he the residue of the Spirit, and wherefore one? Why did he make you one? That he might seek a godly seed. So there would be children that would come forth from this, and there would be a godly seed that would come from it. Therefore, take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously against the wife of his youth. For the Lord, the God of Israel, saith that he hateth putting away. Putting away means divorce. 
For one covereth violence with his garment, saith the Lord of hosts. Therefore take heed to your spirit that ye deal not treacherously. Now returning to Deuteronomy 24, why did Moses give this writing of divorcement? Well, let me give you three reasons that Moses did this. Why was the writing of divorce given? Number one, it was given to control divorce, not to permit it. You see, what God does, he always deals with sinful man just the way that he is. Now, Jesus said, this whole thing came about because of the hardness of your heart. You divorced your wives, even though God said that you should not do it. Now, what Jesus did there was to just deliver another body slam to the self-righteousness of the Pharisees. They said, we're holy. And Jesus said, no, your hearts are hard. And they said, well, we've got permission to do this from Moses. And no, God says, you don't have permission. They said, we've got the paper. No, you don't have just the paper. You don't have permission. Your hearts are right, just like, or hard, just like your father's before you. And do you remember that this is the same thing that Stephen said when he addressed the Pharisees at the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees and the Sadducees? He said the same thing. He said, ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did, so do ye. So Jesus is telling the Pharisees, you're doing the same thing that they did back in the time of Moses. They, their hearts were hard against God and they did what God did not want them to do. God had set down the laws of marriage, but they didn't listen to Moses. And so there was a law given to regulate this bad practice. Divorced people could not marry the person that they had divorced. When a man turned out his wife, he had defiled her. So he couldn't marry her again. She'd become adulterous with another man. So Moses gave the law to regulate the bad practice and to keep it from getting worse. Second reason that Moses gave it was to protect the woman. Now, there seems to be some very good evidence that the sin that is considered in the word uncleanness could be a sexual sin, not adultery. And we've already said that it couldn't be because adultery, uh, because of adultery, because adultery was a death sentence, not a divorce decree. The original word uncleanness means nakedness. And you might keep that in mind that God considers nakedness to be disgusting, like stepping in you-know-what. So it's a bad offense, but it's not a death offense. Now, when a woman was put out like this, it was very bad for her. Now, we know that in their practices of marriage that it wasn't always a good thing. Even in a marriage, even staying inside the marriage, that women were often badly mistreated. But when you put a woman outside of the marriage, when you throw her out of the house, it was just that much worse. And so a man would throw his woman out of the house, his wife out of the house, he would divorce her, and people would look at that and say, I wonder why he did that. It might be because of adultery. And so she was in danger of being stoned to death. They said, well, let's stone her because she must be guilty of adultery. So the writing of divorcement was given to protect her to show that she had not done that terrible sin. Now, the third reason that Moses permitted divorce is because it promotes solid marriages. So he, the third reason, it, he didn't permit divorce, he protected the woman, and then it promotes solid marriages. Well, how does divorce promote solid marriages? Well, let's suppose that a man got angry at his wife, and he did for any reason, and the Pharisees were prone to do that very thing. And so he would throw his wife out of the house. Now, in the time of Moses, it could happen that someone would rashly consider this and throw the woman out. 
without ever trying to solve the problem, and especially without any forgiveness, the husband would get rid of his wife. And then later he decides, you know, that was a dumb thing to do. Who's going to cook for me? Who's going to clean for me? Who's going to do my laundry? And they thought things like that. They were not the modern husband. Who's going to do all this for me? And then, and then he has those natural instincts that he has to satisfy. What am I going to do now? I don't have a wife. And so he decides, well, I'm going to go after her, and I'm going to try to convince her to come back because I want her back. And so she goes to his wife, his, wife, his former wife. She's already married to another person, and he talks to her, and he says, you know something? I did the wrong thing. I threw you out, but I really do like you, and I want you to come back. And she says, you know something? You're better than this guy. So I think what I'll do... I'll come back. And so they go and they get remarried. Now, do you see how that promotes a weak marriage? Because nobody ever stops to consider the ramifications of splitting up the marriage. Nobody sits down to work out the problems. Instead, you have a whole lot of people that are slipping in and out of marriages and changing partners whenever they want. And it's just like a bunch of animals. Today, we call it swinging, something like that. And it's no more right now than it was then. So Moses gave the law to solidify marriage. And he says, if you're so eager to get rid of your marriage, then you're in a fixed position. You can't go back. There aren't any do-overs. You can't get your wife back. So he made it hard for divorce, and he made them think long and hard before they would do it. Now, you see, all of this is calculated to accentuate that very first principle, the command for marriage, that marriage is forever, that you can't just skip it in and out of your marriages. And so the Pharisees, far from finding an acceptable loophole in the law, had actually buried themselves in the worst sort of sin. How did they do that? Well, thirdly, we need to consider the implications of divorce. Now, we go back to verse number 8. This is the gist of what Jesus said. You did this because of your hard hearts. Moses had to regulate your evil practice, and from the beginning it was not so. God did not want divorce then, and God does not want divorce now. So you get a divorce, and everybody's getting a divorce. So what does that mean? Well, first of all, it means that divorce is legalized adultery. Now, there's not much way that you can get around it. You're supposed to stay married. And so if you get a divorce and you marry someone else, the Bible says you become an adulterer. Look at verse 9, Jesus himself speaking. And I say unto you, whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her, which is put away, doth commit adultery. Now, you might have a paper that's been granted by the court, but all you have is a legal document that says we will permit you to live in adultery. You see, God's never released from the first marriage. He said that two people become one flesh, and you can't separate one flesh. And so when the Pharisees married a woman and divorced her, and then married another woman and divorced her, and did that over and over again, they didn't purify the act by getting a writing of divorcement. The piece of paper didn't change anything. All they did was just legalize the sin. And that's a huge problem that we have in America today. The government just legalizes sin. State after state says, well, it's okay for gay marriages. And what does the legalization do? It just puts a big stamp of government approval on sin. They say, it's okay with us. 
When we went to no-fault divorces and made it easier to get a divorce than it is to get married, all we did was to rubber stamp adultery. So it's all nice and tidy and legal, but it doesn't change the fact that no matter who does it is in direct violation of God's law. Now consider adultery. Adultery is one of the ten big ones, as we say, isn't it? Right there in the Ten Commandments. And actually, did you know the Ten Commandments hit on it twice? Hits it in the Seventh Commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. Hits it in the Tenth Commandment, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. It's serious. Jesus singled out this sin in the most powerful, the most famous sermon that was ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. Now, we may pass a law that legalizes it, but all we've done is to legalize sin. And what Jesus wanted the Pharisees to see was the result of their practice. So they thought, we're holy, we're just, and we're good. We've got the writing of divorcement. But they were just plain old adulterous people. Now, as Ray Comfort says, if you commit adultery, what does that make you? A Pharisee? No, dummy, an adulterer. Secondly, divorce makes more adulterers. Now, you don't stem the tide of adultery by making a law. You you don't get everybody out of a mess. You get more people into the mess. Jesus says that when somebody marries a woman that's divorced, he commits adultery and she commits adultery. So you have people out there now that are divorced and they're looking for partners. So what happens when they snatch up that unmarried person and they marry them? They make an adulterer out of that person. And that's what divorce does. It multiplies the number of people that are adulterers. Now, do you think that God is pleased with this wholesale violation of his law? Do we wonder why God doesn't bless America when all we've done was legalize sin and just induce more people to enter into it? So you see, the Pharisees are just massive failures in these attempts at righteousness. I mean, they're buried under this mountain of sin and they'd induced a whole population to follow after them. As Jesus said, you are blind leaders of the blind. And in the next verses, we'll see that the disciples who had grown up in this system were just shocked at the answers that Jesus gave. And he said, you know, they said, if we have to stay with our wives, then it's just better we chuck the whole system and not get married at all. Now, before I close today, I want us to look at one more thing. Jesus said in verse number 9, if a man puts away his wife, except it be for fornication. That's known as the exception clause. Now, there is a lot of argument about it. Some say there is no cause for divorce, and they'll go through long explanations of what Jesus meant here. Uh, There is no cause for divorce unless there is a serious sin committed. But I think that this is a very straightforward thing, that the only cause for divorce is if one of the marriage partners commits fornication. Now, we often say adultery, but we do need to understand that adultery in Scripture means more than what goes on between married people. Sometimes when you read the Bible, you see the word adultery, that's what it means. What goes on between married people and messing with marriage in, in general. But most of the time in the Bible, the word adultery is a broad term that covers any type of sexual sin. So that you, you bring homosexuality into that, that can be called adultery. Pornography can be called adultery. Did you know that? 
It's all wrapped into this term. It can be married people, unmarried people, having relations with outside of the marriage bond. All of that's covered within adultery. But this is the exception that God gives. He permits it. He permits the divorce. He frees the person from the marriage if one person is guilty of fornication. And he doesn't say that you have to divorce over it. And that's where we go back to the 18th chapter, and there's, there's always forgiveness. Uh, you may forgive. You don't have to divorce, but God says that you may divorce. And why does God say that? Because you've severed the one flesh relationship. Now, in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul said, now he was talking to the Corinthian people that were always mixed up in these different kinds of sexual sins, a very highly perverted society. And he said to them, don't you know that a man joined to a harlot becomes one body? In other words, he tells us that a sexual union joins two bodies and it tears apart other bodies. It tears you apart from your wife or your husband and it joins you to that person. And in God's eyes, that is serious enough and it's terrible enough for God to say the sacred union between a husband and his wife is broken and so he releases the person from the marriage. Now, that's a terrible sin to commit, though. And that's because marriage is symbolic of God's church. And also, God used that to demonstrate how much that he loves his people. You read throughout the Old Testament, and you find that Israel had committed adultery on God. You say, well, how does that happen? Well, Israel was considered to be the wife of God. And when Israel went after false gods and attach themselves to false gods, God says, you have committed adultery. You've turned your back on me. That's the kind of thing that we're talking about here. He uses those kinds of terms to show us how terrible that this sin is. And then we find that God has put adultery into the same box with some of the most terrible sins that can be committed. I said it's one of the big ones in the Ten Commandments. What comes right before it? Those of you that are in the uh, class on Wednesday night, what comes before commandment seven? Six. <laughs> That's a good answer. <laughs> Thank you for that. Six comes before seven. And six is, thou shalt not kill. God puts adultery right next to killing people. You think God's not serious about this? In Revelation 21, verse 8, it says, But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers, same terms, and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now, folks, what we're talking about here is something very difficult for us to discuss in, in our society today. There are so many people that are involved in this, and so what people do is they try to sweeten things up. And preachers don't say anything about it because there is so much of it that goes on. But you can't make it pretty. This is terrible stuff in God's eyes. Well, with adultery being so bad, you might ask, well, why doesn't God demand that adulterers still be stoned? Why did we ever stop stoning people for adultery? I mean, that would solve the problem mostly, wouldn't it? Just kill all the adulterers? Well, one thing we know for sure, there would be a certain amount of inequity if we did that. Don't you remember that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount that if a person looks after another, or if a man looks after a woman to lust after her, that he's committed adultery already in his heart. That means there are a lot of adulterers out there, and it also means that you and I 
are guilty of adultery because we have never been able to escape what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. We've all had those lusts. We've all thought those bad thoughts. We're all guilty of adultery. So we end the human race if we start stoning people for it. So what does God do? God is merciful. God is gracious. God forgives. Now, I know that in a sermon like this, I could cause many of you to leave here in just a heap. And you think, how terrible, how miserable that I am. It's tough teaching. But I'm not afraid to preach against sin. I'm just telling you what Jesus said. I'm going to be safe if I stick with what Jesus said. I preach against sin because I know there's a remedy for it. And the remedy is the marvelous, matchless, infinite grace of God. Now, the point here that we need to arrive at is that we must stop being pharisaical about this. We can't be like them and walk right up to Jesus and say, I have not sinned. Yes, we have sinned. And we need to repent of that sin. We need to acknowledge it as sin. Jesus said, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. We've sinned. You know, sometimes we quote the scripture, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And that's kind of an impersonal statement, isn't it? I mean, that's generally true, of the, or is true, of the entire human race, but we make a general statement out of it. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But what you must do before you can come to God and be accepted by him is to quote it this way, for I have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All of us need repentance. The only way that you can ever get to heaven is to acknowledge the fact that you are a sinner, a sinner and then you repent of that sin. You say, I'm sorry for that sin. God, I'll turn from my sin. Place your faith in Jesus Christ and then he will save you. He becomes, he will be the Lord of your life when you receive him. He's the Lord of your life and you say, Lord, I ask you to forgive me of all those sins that I've committed. And so I can stand here and preach to you about adultery today and about divorce today because I know that God forgives. If you're guilty of it, then you just ask God to forgive you. And you go from this point on and you say, my life is going to be lived for the Lord. Lord, please forgive me of my sin. The sin can't be forgiven until you repent of it. Now that's the wonderful truth of this passage. Very difficult for us but we do need to know that God forgives sin. And we go on from this point and make our marriages honor God to the very best of our ability. If you've been divorced, then the person that you're remarried to, you take that person and you make that marriage a marriage that belongs to God and you stay in it and you do what God tells you to do and honor the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, this word that we've read today. Our methodology of going through Scripture brings us to these kinds of problems that we have to discuss. We don't think it's right for us to go around them as we study Scripture verse by verse and chapter by chapter, book by book. Then we come across all the things that are said in Scripture, what you'd have us to know. We come across these words of Jesus Christ that are plain. There's no way that we can explain ourselves around them. And so we accept them as truth. And we understand that we need to repent of our sins and turn to you. Lord, I pray that you'd speak to our people today. Help help us not to have hard hearts. 
Help us to be pliable. May the Holy Spirit work with us, work it within our hearts, and make us receptive of everything your word says. Draw us close to you, Lord. There is someone here today that doesn't know you as Savior. Uh, no matter what the sin of the person has committed, it doesn't matter. If a person is willing to repent of that sin and place their faith in you, we know that you promised to save them. Lord, we depend upon that promise, and we look to you for our help in all of our times of trouble. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.